I'm going to pile right in because this is such a this this passage is is such a unnerving passage. It's a passage that makes us question both our own faith sometimes, but it makes us question, well, what is a true Christian? How can you experience all of these things and then fall away from God? So it asks many basic questions about ourselves and about Christianity itself. So I'm going to start with first just the danger of apostasy. That's what he's dealing with here, the danger of apostasy. He's saying we must leave this unresponsive, childlike situation behind, this dullness to God's promises, as we talked about last week, acting like children and not being responsive to the promise of God. You must move out of this because it could lead to apostasy. That's why he begins this section four after talking about we must move on to maturity Four. There's the danger of apostasy. He's concerned, as he says back in chapter 3, verse 12, take care lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He is concerned that some of them could fall into that situation. But his point is not that you should return from apostasy, but don't fall into apostasy. Because he says, as he says in verse 9 that we read, we have good reason to think that for you, there are better things, things that belong to salvation. You are still serving the saints, as he says. You're still giving evidence that you belong to him. But there is a real danger in your dullness to the promise of God and your listlessness and your temptation to look to deny the promise of God's inheritance and to give up and to turn away because of persecution. So you must avoid apostasy at all costs. So that's the danger of apostasy that's set before these people. Now, let's further then give a definition of this apostasy because this is so important for each one of us. The thing you read in Scripture, both here and throughout the New Testament, is that continuance is the critical factor for Christianity. Continuing to believe and continuing to hope until the end. You can just look across the page in chapter 3, verse 6, where he says, We are his house, that is, we belong to Christ, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This is what we are, but we're only this if we continue to the end. Or in verse 14, We have become partakers of Christ, If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So continuing is the test of reality. And notice he doesn't say, if you continue, then you get to partake of Christ. It's not that as you continue, then you earn or attain to this partaking of Christ. But he says it this way, you have partaken of Christ And it will show itself if you continue to believe and continue to hope in him. 
Now, there's a strong doctrine in Scripture. We call it the doctrine of preservation, where, for instance, in John 10, Jesus says, I know my sheep, my sheep come to me, I will keep my sheep, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's, it's, it's categorical. I will not lose any of my sheep. No one will snatch them out of my hand. They're given to me, and I keep them, and I hold them. But alongside of this teaching of preservation is the teaching of perseverance. So we say, those whom God preserves will and do persevere. Okay, Preserving his people means they continue to persevere. They continue to believe. They continue to hope in him. But you see this emphasis in scripture again and again. When Paul is coming back through in his first missionary journeys to talk to the churches and it says to strengthen them, he says he, he encourages them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We see that's what the Hebrews are facing. They're facing many, the, the uh, readers here, they're facing many tribulations. And the temptation is not to continue. Here's Paul's warning right at the outset to these churches in Acts 14. Continue in the face of tribulation. You have Jesus in John 15 saying, continue, abide in me and I will abide and I abide in you. In other places, I'll just mention one other. In Colossians chapter 1, he says, He has now reconciled us if you continue in the faith. It's the same as Hebrews. You are reconciled, but you give evidence that you are reconciled, that you are his, that you're being preserved as you continue to trust him, as you continue to believe. I think Christ's parable of the sower and the seed is helpful here, where he has the picture of uh, the man sowing the seed, average situation in that day. The seed falls all over the place as he's sowing it. He's just throwing it out. And among the places it falls, it falls in ground that has a a rocky shelf. And so it, it, it can't go deep. It springs up. It really looks good for a while, but then the sun comes up and burns it, burns it up. And and Jesus says, this is like the person who receives the word and with joy they respond to it. But then when tribulation comes along, they fall away and they don't bear fruit. They don't continue. They look like they're the real thing. In fact, they may look better than anything else because they're springing up so fast. But in the end, they demonstrate that they're not the real thing. That they will not, because they do not bear fruit. There's another ground in which it falls. And this ground, he says, is the ground where there are thorns. You can't really see the thorns at first. But when the seed grows up, the thorns grow grow up as well. And they choke out the seed. He says, this is the, uh, the cares of this world and the pleasures of this world that choke out the seed so that it doesn't bear fruit and it dies. So there are two kinds of soil, either because of persecution or because of pleasure and comfort. 
eventually it shows itself, I do not ultimately value Christ. I'm going to turn away from Christ because I don't want to face persecution. I'm going to turn away from Christ because I don't want to give up pleasures or comfort. But then he says there's a final seed, the seed of good soil. He says they produce, this seed produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. And notice how he describes it. These are the ones who've heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Continue to trust and believe and to bear fruit with perseverance. The very description of this abiding and continuing. So in this way, John can say of some that abandoned their fellowship. John chapter 2. He said, they went out from us, but they were not. Of us, because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. See how he distinguishes this. They've abandoned the faith, they've left the church because they weren't truly of us. They were like the the thorny ground or the uh, rocky ground. He said, if they had been of us, they would have continued. If they had been truly God's, they would have continued to believe. <clears throat> and so Calvin says a really important thing here. The apostle here is not talking about theft or perjury or murder or drunkenness or adultery. So it's not something that you might do that means It's all over for you. The early church really misunderstood this passage and taught things like this. We don't have time to talk about it. But he's not talking about some sin that you might do, no matter how heinous it may be, that suddenly renders you incapable of receiving forgiveness or showing that you aren't a believer at all. He says he's referring to a complete falling away from the gospel in which the sinner has offended God, not in some one respect, but has renounced his grace. You see, it's not referring to a sin that may manifest itself in a believer's life. It's a whole disposition, a total rejection of grace, a refusal of Christ altogether. It's the difference in Peter who denied Christ three times. I mean, he totally denied Christ. But then he repented and was restored. The difference in Peter and Judas who could have repented, but he refused repentance and he gave his life to despair and would not believe and turned away from Christ. So, If you compare, as he is doing throughout this uh, epistle, the wilderness generation, the Israelites who, in facing the prospect of going into the promised land, and they turned away from that and refused it, they would not repent of this. They would not turn back. That's the sign of the apostate. He refuses to repent. He refuses grace. He refuses uh, what Christ has done for him. 
And so if you're anxious for your condition, if you're concerned about whether you obey or not, or whether you're a believer or not, you're concerned about sin in your life, that's not the sign of an apostate. You see? The apostate refuses repentance. He turns his back upon Christ. He is unmoved by the appeal of the gospel. That's the sad condition. But of course, he is concerned that they could become that, you see. He's concerned, and he would be concerned about any congregation, that there be any in our midst who would fall away from the living God in this way. But you see, in verse 11, what does he exhort them to? He says in verse 11 of of chapter 6, that they show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. You see, he, he says, keep having confidence in God's promise. Keep having confidence in God's continued goodness in your life. Keep having confidence in God's ultimate goodness in the last day, in the new heavens and the new earth, so that you will continue to endure even in the midst of persecution. Continue to trust his goodness. Don't be sluggish. That's what he started this section with, the word dull, back in chapter 5, verse 11. Don't be sluggish. Don't be dull toward the promises But imitate those who inherit the promises through patience. So hazard everything for the rich promises that God sets before us. Don't even get close to this apostasy. And it helps some to define this by comparing them to Israel because Israel was faced with the ultimate promise of inheritance. You see, they were standing before the land. This was the final result of everything that God had done in delivering them out of Egypt and bringing them through the desert, supplying their need. It was all for this point of entering into the inheritance. And so in that way, the inheritance, the promises of God that are opened up before them. In other places, he calls it the city that is to come, the better country that is to come, the new Jerusalem, all of these things that are set before you. Don't turn away from that glorious inheritance that is yours in Christ Jesus. Continue to enrich yourself with full hope and assurance of these wonderful things that are coming to you in Christ. So the church facing persecution are beginning to doubt God's promised inheritance. They're tempted to doubt the goodness of God, just like Israel did when they stood before the land and refused to enter because they did not believe in the goodness of God and the promise of God. And he's urging them to keep your hope firm. Now, let's, def- let's further define this idea of impossible. We've 
had a definition of apostasy, this renouncing of God's grace. What does it mean when he says it is impossible, verse 4, to renew them to repentance in verse 6? It is impossible. We see when someone turns from God's ultimate provision in Christ, the final climax of everything God has done in the creation of the world, in the formation of his people, in the whole direction of history is for this purpose that his son come and die. And they've turned their back upon that. The sense is, what else is there? Here they have turned their back on this God who in his passion in his earnest desire to save people, would show himself in the death of his own son. The rejection of this promise and goodness that was won at such a cost. It's impossible, not only in the sense that their hearts are so hard, But it's impossible in the face of so great a salvation that they have refused. There is nothing else to be offered to them. There is nothing else to be done for them. There is no other deliverance. If Christ's sacrifice has been rejected, what else is there? And the impossible does have to do with God. Not that it's impossible for God to do. But later in verse 18, it says it is impossible for God to lie. Well, that's not talking about God's power. But God refuses to lie. He will never lie. That's not his character. And in this case, the sad reality is God allows them to terminate the relationship. They turn their back upon him and he refuses to do anything about it. Now, it doesn't, we, we can't know in any given circumstance who is and who is not apostate. We don't know. But this is a warning to us to say, if you turn away from this grace, you may never be renewed again. In fact, it's stated categorically, it is impossible. If you refuse this grace, that's it. There is no other salvation. So the impossibility surrounds the greatness of that which has been refused and the fact that it is God's offer that has been rejected and there's nothing else to be done. You've plunged yourself into death. And then he says, if when this rejection occurs, we are crucifying. Notice in verse 6, crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It means that it puts a person on the side of those who are responsible for his death. It puts a person in the position of those who refused his claim to be the son of God, the Pharisees and Jewish leaders. It's putting yourself in the position to say, I refuse to acknowledge you as the son of God. 
I stand with them to mock that cross. I stand with them to deny the reality of your death and your kingship. And it says they are presently doing it. It's a present tense verb. They are constantly re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to public shame. It's the shame of the cross being reenacted by my life as I openly deny Him. To keep heaping shame on my former Savior if I do this. So I not only show my contempt for Christ, but my life makes him contemptible to others as I declare to them he's not worth following. My life is saying, don't lose it for him. And so those who abandon Christ because of the shame we fear expose Christ to great shame. This is the only place where the crucifixion is mentioned. And it's mentioned in terms of as we deny him and turn our back on him, we crucify him. And when you take this along with Hebrews 13, where it says there, we are to join Christ outside the city and bear his reproach. That is, we identify with Christ's death and are willing to bear reproach because it is so precious that we could have our sins forgiven, that we could be in the presence of God, that he would attend us and love us and give us his kingdom, that we will stand gladly with Christ and bear his reproach. It goes from either bearing his reproach or joining in his reproach. There's no middle ground. I'll either be part of the mocking of him as the son of God or identify and be mocked along with him as I come to that cross. So I'll either honor him and adore him and be humble and broken and grateful for the cross or I'll just pile on top of Christ and him crucified along with all others. And so for us, it means that I'll give you the final analogy of Narnia. One of the great pictures in the final book of of, uh, Narnia is that the children's book is that when they get to the new Narnia, the heaven, it says that they keep going further up and further in. And so they see there's just this continual growth and And exploration into the glory and goodness of God. And I would put that picture before you right now. Keep going further up and further into the glory of Christ. Whether it is the word of God. Whether it is worship. Whether it is in being more and more open to others. As you talk honestly about your struggles with sin. So that these things don't fester and begin to get a hold of your life. Being a part of the church's Worship and fellowship so that you humble yourself and recognize I must have the grace of God that's shown forth in his fellowship. All along knowing it is Christ who must move me forward. It is God who must lay hold of me and keep hold of me. I cannot hold myself. 
It is God in his sovereign grace and his goodness who alone can preserve me. And I entrust myself to him to do that. For abide, as Jesus said in that very passage in John 15, abide in me, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Let us pray. Oh Lord, give us grace that we will ever continue to trust in your goodness, ever continue to abide in Christ. And as Christ says there, to abide in his love. Oh Lord, may we ever abide in your love and explore that love and be constantly moved by that love, always putting ourselves in the hands of this glorious God who has acted for us in Christ. Amen.